Well, Happy New Year. In this uh, new year, we will start a new sermon series. And at this moment, I don't know how long it will go. But we are going to be walking through the book of Ephesians over the next several weeks. The title of this sermon series is Our Life in Christ. And as we begin, I'm going to go pretty slow. We're only going to go cover we're only going to cover a few verses at a time until we lay the foundation and then we're going to expand. And I want to I want to share why I'm doing this. Uh, we have I have taught Ephesians in Bible study a few years ago. I love the book of Ephesians. Uh, I've never preached the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. I have preached parts of it, but never the entire letter. And one of, I believe, my calling as your pastor, as any pastor, it is first and foremost to equip the saints. That is my primary job as your pastor and preacher, to equip the saints. Um, some would argue if, if, we, if we threw out a quiz and say, what's the role of the pastor? It's, it would be to you know, like preach the gospel and make converts and things of that nature. But that is actually the role of the Christian. The role of the Christian is to share the gospel. And as a Christian, I share the gospel. But as a preacher of the gospel and as a pastor of the church, my job is to equip the saints. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is equipping you all with the tools needed to argue effectively for Christ. There are going to be some things that many of you all have heard me say before that we are going to slow down on because I believe, as it would be with any congregation, that there are things that you have heard there are probably even things that you would say that not only that you would agree with, but you would say, yes, I get that. I understand that. As you tell me that concept, I understand what you're saying. But when it comes to arguing effectively for it, I want us to make sure that every one of us have that ability to be able to defend the faith in and out of season. And I think that is vital to our life in Christ. If we cannot defend the faith, if we cannot defend the Word of God, if we cannot grasp it with confidence, not just the confidence that Christ is our Savior and Lord and He has redeemed us, but confidence in our understanding of the Word, then it will make it more difficult for us when we come face to face with, ob with obstacles and with objections from the world. And you will face those. If you have not been faced with objections from the world regarding your faith, then it is likely that one of two things are not happening. Number one, you're not living for Christ in the world. Or two, you're not effectively teaching or preaching the gospel to those around you. And so we want to make sure that you are capable of doing that. So we're going to begin with the letter to Ephesians here in 2023. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. 
And this sermon is entitled, Blessed, Part 1. This is at least a three-part sermon that you're going to be hearing over the next three weeks. Beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Would you pray with me? Gracious, holy, heavenly Father, Help us divide your word correctly today. Help us to understand what you have inspired. Help us to comprehend. Help us to help us to kneel at the truth of your word. Help us not to compromise your word with our own desires, our own preconceptions, our own misconceptions, and help us to fully appreciate what you have done, what you have inspired, what you have taught, what you have ordained. Father, I pray this morning that our sin does not prevent us from grasping the fullness of the truth that lies herein. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The letter to the Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul around 60 A.D. This would have been before the fall of Jerusalem, before the collapse of the temple, So there would have still been worship at the temple in Jerusalem. There are some scholars, I would call them progressive scholars, who argue against the fact that Paul is the author, yet the, uh, the letter in itself and Christian tradition tells us that Paul is the author. One of the arguments against Paul being the author is that it is too theologically sophisticated to have been written by Paul at this time. And I argue this, is that if God is inspiring this text, it will be as theologically sophisticated as God ordains. It was written by Paul while he was imprisoned by the Romans. The church in Ephesus was planted by Paul on his third missionary journey. And it's a very diverse body of Christ, and it is arguably the most successful church that Paul planted. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the saints, Christian, both Jew and Greek, to explain the relationship between Christ and the Christian, Christ and the church, and the purpose for this Christian life. 
And in all, while the letter to the Ephesians is succinct, the richness of its theology can only be outperformed by Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, what I mean by that is that if you were going to give a new believer something to read that demonstrates the the density of theological richness that is in the Christian doctrine and Christian life, you don't give them the book of Romans. It's overwhelming and it, and, it, and it ties too closely to the Old Testament that many new believers won't understand and comprehend that and be able to pull it together. You give them the, book of the, the letter to the Ephesians because while it is short, it is plumb full. Every word is dripping with meaning. And that's why we're going to take our time this morning. And in many ways, beginning in Ephesians is so perfect for beginning the new year. It really is. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. It makes clear where we as Christians stand with regards to our life in Christ and our place in the world. And so if you're going to begin the new year in a sermon series or in some sort of Bible study, beginning in Ephesians is a wonderful place to start. It is, a, it is an opportunity to recalibrate, to recalibrate our lives so that we'll be focused on the things that really matter and we won't be distracted by falsehoods that the world tries to place on us. Now, we're not going to dissect the greeting of this letter too much, but I do want to point out two offhanded but crucial points that Paul makes in his opening remarks. Now, he says these, and it's a very traditional, a very common greeting that Paul makes, but again, it is dripping with meaning. Let me read the greeting, the standard greeting that Paul writes. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, Paul begins by saying that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, I've underlined it by the will of God. When Paul says this, and for the remainder of this letter, and throughout all of his epistles, we should assume that Paul is writing these things in accordance to God's will. Now, why does that matter? Much of what Paul writes was controversial in his day and remains controversial even to our present time. What Paul writes is not what we would say is would be common sense to the world. In fact, it would fly in the face of what the world would deem logical or right or true. It means that these thoughts, the theology that is discussed, they are not Paul's own recipe, but they are of God. So when we disagree 
with something that Paul has written, we are not disagreeing with Paul. We are disagreeing with our Creator God. He is the one who inspired these words. And let's be very clear. If it was a human author writing these words, they would not write these words. Because as you're going to see, as, as Paul writes these words, he is effectively taking the power out of human hands and placing it solely at the feet of God. Now, humans don't like to lose power. Humans don't like to lose influence. But that is effectively what Paul is doing as he writes these inspired words. In addition, Paul is not writing by his own authority, but on God's authority. And that's why it's important that Paul writes that he is an apostle. He is not just any disciple of God. He is an apostle, meaning that he has been handpicked by God to be a messenger of the things to come. And secondly, this letter is to faithful saints, to the faithful saints of Ephesus. Like much of the New Testament, this letter is written to those who have been saved by Christ. We often try to, and, and this is why I mentioned at the beginning of, my, of this message that my job as a pastor and as a preacher is to equip the saints. We often will use Sunday morning as the opportunity to evangelize unbelievers. Now, how does that look? is that Christians will go out into their community and instead of sharing the gospel and witnessing to unbelievers themselves, the mode of evangelism is to give them a time and a place to show up for church, expecting that the pastor will evangelize those unbelievers from the pulpit. But that is not my job. Now, I want to preach the gospel from the pulpit. But my primary role up here is to equip believers. It is to make sure that you all have the necessary tools to go out and witness and to share the gospel. The Sunday morning worship service on the Lord's Day was then and is now for believers. It is the meeting time for believers to gather. And the New Testament was primarily written to who? Believers. It was not written to unbelievers. It was written to effectively... Remember, Paul, when he writes... If he was writing to unbelievers, he would say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to all you wicked unbelievers out there. That's what he would have written, but that's not what he writes. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the faithful saints of Ephesus, of Galatia, of Thessalonica, 
He's writing to Christians. The entire New Testament is committed to equipping Christians with the ability to do what? Go out and make disciples. Now, I am not telling you to stop inviting people to church. Invite unbelievers, non-believers to church. Do that. But that is, to not, that is not to replace your primary duty of making disciples. And you say, I'm uncomfortable with that, or I don't have confidence in myself to be able to do that. I don't know. I didn't go to seminary. None of the disciples did either. None of them did. That's why we're doing this, is to build your confidence to be able to argue effectively in defense of the faith. That's why we're doing it. So that when you get done, you can say, I know that. When someone objects to the gospel, when someone objects to the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus, I can defend that. I can, I can, I can argue effectively for that. And you might find that God is using you as a means of reaching them for the sake of Christ. So this does not mean that the contents of this letter does not apply to non-believers, but it does have special significance for those who do believe. So let's begin here looking at the body of this letter. The blessings of God. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Every word, every single word here is dripping with meaning. Paul begins this theological discourse with two verses that lay out the thesis of his argument. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That lays out everything that he's getting ready to argue for. All right? That God has blessed us. If you are a believer in Christ, you are blessed. And that is no minor thing. That is no minor thing. That means God has saw fit to show favor to you. The God of the universe has chosen in His divine wisdom to show favor to you. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Now, I believe it's important that we walk very slow through this first chapter because many of the arguments that Paul makes that I'm going to try to uh, divide here are terms and concepts that are going to shape the remainder of this letter, and I will even say shape the remainder of the New Testament. In fact, I will argue that if you can comprehend the, the details of the letter to the Ephesians, it will make your reading of the Gospels, of the book of Revelation, of the letters of Peter, even more fruitful. They will be it will be a richer experience. I'd like to challenge you this year 
If you have never read through, and even if you have, read through the entire Bible in a year, you might say, I have done that, I have started in Genesis, and I make it all the way to Joshua. And I've read Genesis 30 times, but I've never made it all the way to Revelation, right? I get that, I understand. So I want to challenge you with something different this year. I want you to start in Matthew. I want you to start in Matthew. Make it your goal this year to read the New Testament. That's a lot easier, right? Make it your goal to read the New Testament. And as you read it, keep in mind what Paul has written to the, to the Ephesians. Because that con those concepts that he writes will undergird the rest of the Testament. And it will make that a much richer experience. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to break down this, these two verses into three parts, okay? First, I want to look at these spiritual blessings. What does Paul mean when he writes spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? If he says that you have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, it would be really good for you to know what that is, right? Now, what do we do? We read that because we're trying to make it through in a whole year, right? What we do is we read that line and we just skip right over it. Wouldn't it be good to know that if our holy God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, to know what those blessings are so that we can grab onto them and have hope and we can have joy in those blessings? But I bet you if I asked you right now what those spiritual blessings are, many of us, if not all of us, would have a little bit of a hard concept, a hard time understanding, okay, what are those spiritual blessings? Are they just kind of some sort of general spiritual blessing, you know, kind of floating out there. Like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, right? Which is by, what, by far and away this decade's most annoying thing to say. Are you a religious person? No, but I'm spiritual. That's not what Paul means by this. What does Paul mean? Number one, he means that the blessings that God bestows upon Christians are spiritual and through the Spirit of God. These blessings are not physical blessings. That is an important thing for us to understand. And while these spiritual blessings may have consequences for physical, for the physical realm, they are not, first and foremost, physical. They are spiritual blessings. This implies that the blessings of God are not, for, first and foremost, about power, about wealth, and about health. So when Paul says you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, do not equate that to a bigger bank account or more power and stature and fame. That's not what Paul talks about. Rather, the blessings that Paul has in mind are deeper and have more eternal significance. They are, in fact, priceless. Money has a price. Health has a price. The spiritual blessings that you and I have been blessed with are priceless. Number two, these blessings are bestowed in Christ. This implies that anyone outside of Christ does not have access to these blessings. These blessings are not for everyone. They are for the saints. They were purchased through the blood of Jesus 
for those God intended to save. And finally, these blessings reflect the blessedness of God. This means that the blessings resemble are derived from the character of God. So whatever blessings you may receive from the world, they are infinitesimal compared to the blessings that God gives us because those blessings are derived from God's very character. God's very character. They are priceless. Whatever these blessings are, and we are going to discuss them, they cannot be measured by earthly means, and they have no worldly currency. And what I mean by that is that if you tried to trade, if you will, your spiritual blessings for worldly blessings that the world and the the people of the world hold so dear, they would scoff at you and you would get no return. But in fact, one spiritual blessing is worth more than all the wealth that this world has to offer. The value of these blessings is measured on a heavenly and spiritual scale. Therefore, the world doesn't comprehend the sacrifice and the commitment that faithful Christians have to Christ and the Christian life. They cannot comprehend this. The world, I've said this before, they think we're weird. They think we're weird. If you are not considered weird by the world, then one of two things is probably true. You are number one, either not hanging around a lot of people in the world. Your your main group of people are sitting right here, right? Okay? It's hard to evangelize sitting right here. Or number two, we're not living for Christ in the world. We look too much like the world. But let's be very clear. If you look like Christ and if you're living like Christ, you're going to look weird. I, I said something that was profoundly biblical, and I say that because it was actually straight out of Scripture one day. I didn't quote it. I didn't, I didn't like give the reference, but I basically quoted the verse to somebody who is not a believer in reference to family and child rearing and things like that. And the look that they gave me told me that they thought that I came from outer space. They were shocked by the words that came out of my mouth. Because what I said was completely contrary to what the world teaches. The world teaches idolatry. That's what the world teaches. Christ teaches faithfulness, holiness. Measured on God's standards. So if I could say one thing, I don't really call this a New Year's, re- New Year's sermon, but I will say this. In the New Year, make this one of your resolutions in the midst of you know eating healthier and losing weight and all this kind of stuff. Make this one of your primary resolutions to be weirder in 2023. 
I mean that, okay? Be weirder in 2023. Make it your goal to make unbelievers look at you like you are crazy. I don't mean by wearing underwear on your head. I mean by living for Christ. Live for Christ in such a way that it makes unbelievers stop and wonder why you are so darn weird. What is wrong with you? Well, I love Jesus. That's so weird. I know, let me tell you about it. Show them how weird you are. It's funny, sometimes, every now and then, I will meet a believer that I think is weird. But man, they are really weird. And actually what I'm seeing is that they are just closer to Jesus than I am. They are just walking closer to Jesus than I am. And you know what it looks like? It looks weird because I got a little bit too much of the world in me. So make it your goal this year to look really weird to the world. We should make t-shirts, right? Yeah, make t-shirts like that. Yeah, I look weird. Follow me to weird world, right? Okay. The world does not comprehend the sacrifice and the commitment that faithful Christians have to Christ and the Christian life. To the world, if you cannot entertain yourself to death, put it in a bank account, or use it to move up the corporate ladder, the value any of any commodity is limited. But again, the blessings of God are not an earthly currency. They are not. The second word here, or the second phrase, that I want you to focus on this morning is the word chosen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, what were those spiritual blessings? Hold on, you have to come back next week, all right? See, that's the, good, that's the good part of a sermon where you have to come back next week for the answer, right? But let's look at this word chosen. Now, I've been preaching for a while this idea of election and predestination, and I've been accused of preaching it too much. You talk about predestination and election too much. Go on. That is usually... I'm usually accused of that by somebody who doesn't like it. They don't like it. But any preacher or teacher that wants to avoid these topics will also have to avoid huge portions of the New Testament and the Old Testament. The entire Bible is replete. It is, it is filled with the idea that God chooses some and not others. This phrase, even as He chose us, actually would be better translated because He chose us. Let me read it in that light, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in, every, in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because He chose us in Him. Because He chose us. If I could define, describe it this way, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing because Christ chose you. In other words, if He had not chosen you, 
you would not have been gifted these spiritual blessings. He chose you. Now, I have seen pastors and teachers do theological gymnastics around the word chosen or election or predestination to make it work out to mean something that it does not mean so that it fits their own precious theology. But that's not the way we do things. We read the scripture, we understand the authorial intent, the author's intent, and we bend our will to the word, not God's will to ours. That's what we do. So if this is uncomfortable, that's okay. It was uncomfortable to me when I first started wrapping my mind around this. But we can't just say, well, I'm just going to ignore this. We can't do that. We have to believe it and we have to accept it because this undergirds. In fact, I will argue that the Bible, the entire Bible, does not make sense if you don't understand this the way the author intended. It doesn't make sense. Then you have to start reading everything out of context, right? It's kind of like if you tell a lie to someone that you know, you kind of have to remember what lie you told. Because if you don't remember what lie you told, then you have to come up with more lies to defend the lie. It's just better to tell the truth in the beginning, right? Kids, remember that. It's always easier just to tell the truth, all right, because it doesn't change. So these blessings are a result of God choosing us, not simply related to God, cho- not simply related to God choosing us. Okay, let me say that again. These blessings are a result of God choosing us, not a simply related to God choosing us. We have been bestowed spiritual blessings because He chose us. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we see God making it a practice of choosing people. And that's what's really funny. Individuals who have a problem with God choosing people who are saved and people who are not have no problem with God choosing Israel in the Old Testament. Remember, He chose Israel not because of anything they did. He just chose them. He actually chose them because they were small. It was counter to their merit that He chose them. He chose Moses. He chose David, he chose Samuel, he chose Noah, he chose Abraham, and so on. You know, David, remember, David was not looking to be king. He was out there, he was out there roping sheep. Did he rope sheep? I don't know. He was doing something, he was cleaning up sheep. That's what he was doing. He was not looking to be king. But God chose him. He did not choose any because of their merit. He chose individuals in accordance with his will to accomplish his divine plan and to bring glory to his holy name. That's why. So when you, when someone asks you, well, then why did God choose you? You can say to bring glory to his name. That's it. How many people in the world are looking for the meaning of life? Folks, we got the answer to bring glory to, the glory, to bring glory to the Lord. That's it. That is the meaning, that is the purpose of life. Why were you created? To bring glory to the Lord. Well, I'm not an unbeliever. How do I bring glory? You were created. 
If you did not bring glory to the Lord, you would have not been created. But you were. In this instance, here with Paul, the choosing implies for salvation. Not a role, but for salvation. Which we're going to see more fully next week. I'm going to dive into it a little bit more deeply next week. So let's be clear, it's very difficult for me not to begin preaching this next week's sermon right now, okay? Like, I want, to, I want to just go ahead and dive into it, but it's already, you know, we're already getting into this, you know, this afternoon, so, you know, we're just going to sit right here. But I'm telling you, I'm excited about next week because we're going to be able to wrestle with some really cool things. So just be ready for that. But be honest, to be honest, I don't believe that most Christians struggle with the idea of God choosing. I really don't. I don't believe anybody who has an issue with predestination or election or choosing has an, has an issue with God choosing. That's not the issue. To deny God's sovereign choice would be to deny the entire Bible. I believe that Christians struggle to accept God choosing individuals apart from merit or work. It's not that God chooses. It's that God chooses and it does not matter what you do about it. That's what people have struggled with. Because we want to have some control. We are control freaks. And if we can't somehow manipulate it or control it or modify it or change it in some way, then we are uncomfortable with it. But the truth is, is that God choosing us has absolutely nothing to do with anything you have ever done or anything you ever will do. There's nothing that you can do to change God's choice. It is what it is. In middle school, you get chosen to be on a kickball team in order of merit. The best players or the least most or the or at least the most popular, they get picked first. In the workforce, you get chosen to do a job based on your merit. But we struggle with the idea that we might be chosen or denied without our merit being considered at all, especially for something that's as important as eternal life. We struggle with it. I get it. The thing that kept me from putting both feet in to this idea of God's sovereign choice, putting both feet in on that ship, was the fact that there was nothing that I could do. Nothing. I had no role in it. And I struggled with that. I'd say, but what about this? What about this? No. 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 You and I are Christians not because of I or you, but because of God. That's it. And here's the rub. If God had been choosing those who were saved based on merit, none of us would have been chosen. None of us. So we want the opportunity to earn it or to have some control over it. But the reality is, is that if you're given one ounce of control, you lose everything. Because you can't. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's choice. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Every single day that we live, our actions merit 
condemnation, not salvation. Even our benevolent actions, our good deeds, are tainted with selfishness. I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove it. You go out to the parking lot and you see someone struggling getting their grocery groceries into the car and you go help them get those groceries into the car when you walk away you cannot tell me that there is zero ounce of you patting yourself on the back for doing that. Every one of us are doing it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not even saying that God didn't lead you to do it. In fact, I will argue that God did lead you to do it. When I have paid for somebody behind me in the line, I'm not saying that God didn't encourage me to do that. What I'm also saying is that when I leave, I pat myself on the back for it. And it wasn't even my idea. Trust me, it's not my idea to spend money on food for other people. I like to eat. And I have limited money for food. Crystal only gives me a little bit of an allowance. Even our good deeds are tainted with selfishness. You do not want a holy God deciding about your eternal life based on what you've done. You don't. That only ends one way. You want a holy God. Now, catch this, okay? You want a holy God to look past what you've done and look to what Jesus has done. That's what you want. So our, our prayer is, God, <laughs> please don't see this, even though he does, and see Jesus. That's the goal. That's the goal. Now, you might argue that God does save us because of our merit or work, because we chose Christ or we decided to follow. You know, I have decided to get it, right? Great song. Love the song, right? But here's the truth. If you decided to follow Jesus, you didn't just come up with that. God planted that in your heart. But if you put all the value on you choosing Jesus or you deciding to follow Jesus, that would be a merit. That would be a merit. But that's not how we're saved. God choosing us is completely independent of us. It's independent of us. It is based solely on His sovereign will to further support this idea that our merit has no importance with regards to our salvation, we see that God did the choosing before the world was formed. It says here in this passage that even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, you didn't have an opportunity to do anything good. You haven't done it because He chose you before anything was created. It has nothing to do with you. You had no merit for God to measure. Now, one last argument. You might say that God can see the future. God looked into the future. And He saw how awesome I was going to be. 
And so he chose me for his eternal kickball team. Let's just say that's true. Let's just, you know, let's step out of reality for a minute and say that that's true. The only thing that that does is give you a little bit of credit for choosing Christ and you make God into some cheap fortune teller. That's all you've done. But the result doesn't change. The result doesn't change. The end still occurs. You have either chosen to follow Christ or you have not chosen to follow Christ and Christ and God sees it from the foundations of the earth and you can't change it. So in the end all that you can do is you can say, well, at least at least it was on me. I had control, right? Folks, I don't want that power. I don't want that power. I've seen what I do with control and I'm just going to be brutally honest. A lot of times I mess it up. I mess it up. I'll, I am perfectly fine giving God complete control over my salvation. To be quite honest with you, I'd like to give Him complete control over everything. May His will be done and not mine. You can't change the future that a sovereign God sees. You certainly cannot change a future that God ordains. Because if you could, then God would not be God. So I think it's best to let God be God and we'll just reap the blessings. Now let's go to the end here. Holy and blameless. He says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Why were we saved? Why were we chosen? Yes, it's to glorify the Lord. What are the means by which that happens? To walk holy and blameless before Him. Our merit plays no role in our salvation, but our salvation is intended to bear fruit. I wonder if many Christians struggle with joy in the Christian life because they are so worried about earning or losing salvation. If I thought that my salvation was dependent upon my behavior and what I did, my anxiety, I'd be on every type of medication that they make. I'd be saying, give me experimental medication because my anxiety would be so high. Because I'd be in such fear that I either wouldn't earn salvation or I would lose it. But that's not, the say, that's not the case. I want to tell individuals to stop. Stop trying to work or earn your salvation. I know, I believe 100% that probably everybody in here believes that we are saved by faith and not of works. We're going to be preaching that in a few weeks, okay? I believe everyone in here, you know that verse. You could probably recite it from memory. And you believe that verse intellectually. But practically, there are many Christians who are so filled with anxiety about not being good enough or, or not being holy enough or not being godlike enough. 
Just stop it in 2023. Just stop that. You will never be good enough. You will never be holy enough. You will never, never, this side of glory, be able to erase every evil thought, every evil action. You just won't be able to do it. So stop it. Stop trying to earn your salvation or to keep from losing it. Because neither of those are dependent upon you. And start living for Christ. Stop being anxious about your salvation. Stop being anxious about someone else's salvation. I see so many parents and grandparents just wringing their hands and they've got the stress stress wrinkles up here on their forehead because they're so stressed out that their child or their grandchild isn't saved. And I'm like, you can't save them. That's not your job. So stop worrying about that. All you can do is just preach the gospel. It is not my job as Annie's grandfather. Yes, that sounded very weird when I just said that. It is not my job. It is not Crystal's job. It is not Lucas's job or Allie's job to make sure she is a Christian. That's not our jobs. I am not worried about it one bit. And I'm not worried about it because I can't control that. The only thing I can do is share the gospel and to live it out. That's all I can do. And God has equipped us, if we are Christians, has equipped us to be able to do that. So stop fretting over it. Stop fretting over it. Your fretting is stealing your joy. And I will tell you this, unbelievers are not, are not drawn to anxiety or fretting or worrying. The world provides enough of that for them. Unbelievers are drawn to joy and peace and kindness, the, thing, the fruits of the Spirit. So just let go of that baggage this year. If you've got a kid who's not a believer or you're not sure about it, don't fret about it. Don't worry about it. Just pray about it. Continue to share the gospel. Continue to live, that, live your life out. And God very well may use you as a means for him to be saved or her to be saved. When we are trying to earn salvation, we are not living for Christ. Instead, we are trying to take the place of Christ. And you and I make horrible saviors. So instead, this year, take a break from the anxiety and just live for Jesus. Just live for Jesus. Folks, it's not hard. When we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is filling us, it is not hard to live for Christ. That doesn't mean we're going to be sinless. But we repent and we move on. 
Live for Christ so that others might be drawn to Christ by God's sovereign will. You were chosen for a purpose. And you might say, well, if God does the choosing, then why do I even bother with good living and evangelism? Well, that's spoken like a true non-believer. Because we care about evangelism and good works because we were chosen for them, not because of them. You were chosen for them. You were chosen to walk blameless and to be holy. Why? Because our God is holy. And He has blessed us out of the character of His blessing. And you might just be the means by which God uses to introduce Jesus to someone this year. So my hope is that as we begin, as we continue to understand these concepts of choosing and election and predestination, we understand the biblical nature of these. That it doesn't produce this like, like this, 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 this anxiety that we've lost control of our lives. We have, we have given up control that we never had to begin with to a God who knows better than us. And when you believe that, and when you live that in a practical way, not just an intellectual way, the anxiety just floats away. Just floats away. And you can have peace, and you can have joy, and people are drawn to that. I am drawn to happy people. Are you? Are you drawn to happy people? People who just kind of, when they walk in, they kind of light up the room, you know? They're like, I want to be with that person. I am not drawn to morose, anxious-filled, just, the sky is falling all the time. I'm not drawn to those kind of people. They make me feel crummy, you know? You ever met that individual that is always complaining? It's blue skies. 73 and a half, only 20% humidity, the sun's shining, there are birds in every tree. But my yard needs mowed. I don't want to be around that person. I want to be around the person that says, the weather's great, I get to mow my yard. Yes! That's who we need to be for Christ. And we will draw the world to us. And you will be able to effectively defend the faith in their presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who saves. Thank you for being sovereign in every way. Thank you for being holy and kind and just. And Father, I thank you for choosing believers apart from our merit. Because our merit could not earn anything but condemnation. Help us to believe and trust and let the anxiety and the worry fall by the wayside this year so that we can truly live for joy as we live for Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.